This morning, I want you all to think about a time or think about the time when you came to first know God. Think about the moment that you first understood the gospel of grace. What kind of freedom do you remember experiencing? You experienced a lot of freedom. None of us in this room have had a complete break from sin, but we all have experienced some initial victory over sin. And at the very least, we all had a new relationship with sin. You experienced the free gift of salvation itself. You entered into a new relationship with Jesus, and that came without you doing a single thing to earn it. The freedom we experience in Jesus Christ goes beyond just freedom from sin. There's a very well-known Reformed pastor. He's all over the internet. He has a, a major following. And he likes to, he likes to get tattoos. He, he drinks alcohol regularly. And he likes to do pretty much anything that is either a gray area or socially taboo among Christians. He likes to do it publicly. He likes to make videos and post videos about these things. For instance, he'll post a video of him doing a Bible study or having a theological discussion while drinking beer. And I am not here this morning making a statement against drinking alcohol or against getting tattoos, but there are many Christians out there who simply aren't where this pastor is. And when they see him practicing these things publicly, it bothers their conscience. And so my question is, is it right for the pastor to be flaunting his freedom? If God allows us to have freedom in certain areas, does that mean it's okay for us to throw our freedom in people's faces? Does that mean that it's okay to practice our freedom in the presence of the people it bothers. We'll get back to that question. Last time we were in Acts, Paul and Barnabas, they'd been going to several cities, and everywhere they went, Gentiles, they had been accepting the gospel. And when we left off uh, with that missionary journey, they were in Antioch. And then, if you remember, well, this is, it's been over a month now, I think. While they were in Antioch, some Jewish Christians came to Antioch, and they came to Paul and Barnabas, and they told them, what you guys are doing is essentially wrong. You guys simply can't tell Gentiles to follow Jesus without telling them they have to be circumcised and obey the law. Gentiles have to be circumcised. They have to follow the law to be saved. Paul and Barnabas, they, they strongly disagree with this. They argue with the Jewish Christians. And you can tell that this is a big issue for them because Paul and Barnabas, they drop everything they're doing in Antioch. 
and then they head to Jerusalem. And that's not like us just leaving the church and going to, to Middletown or something like that. That's a long journey. That's a long, faraway place. It's a long distance. And so in our text, what we come to, they're having a council. It's called the Jerusalem Council. And it's very, very important to the New Testament. It's one of the most important sections in the New Testament. And last time, we went through verses 1 to 11. We probably touched on some of the verses we're talking about today, but we focused on verses 1 to 11. But I want you guys to remember, because it's been so long, the issue that is at hand. So look at verse 5 so you can remember the issue that is at hand. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So that's the argument they're facing. The question that they're facing is, how do we implement the Gentiles into the people of God? And do the Gentiles have to be circumcised and follow the law to be saved? I explained this in depth last time, so I'm not going to do it again. But essentially, the early Jewish Christians, they believed two things. Jewish nationalism and legalism. Jewish nationalism and legalism. They believed that you had to become a Jew to be saved. And you also had to earn salvation by obeying the Old Testament law on top of believing in Jesus. And in our text, after the Pharisees say that, there is recorded three responses to the Pharisees. Three responses at this council to the Pharisees. There's a response of Peter, there's a response of uh, Paul and Barnabas, and there's a response of James. Last time, we focused just on Peter's response to the Jewish Christian Pharisees. And Peter argued that the Jewish Christian Pharisees are wrong. And that's not an oxymoron. You can be a Jewish Christian Pharisee. Paul was. The Jewish Christian Pharisees, uh, Peter argued against them. And he said that the Gentiles and Jews are both saved by grace. His points, if you remember, in summary, God has already given the Gentiles the Holy Spirit by faith alone. God doesn't favor one people over another. And even the Jews couldn't obey the law themselves. Those are the three arguments Peter gives. In verse 12, which is where our text begins, verse 12 is just a quick summary statement stating that Paul and Barnabas also shared with the council what God had done with their work, uh, through their work with the Gentiles too. And now, Verse 13, this is where we're going to focus this morning. It's James' response. Who is James? There's a, a, a few different Jameses in the New Testament. Uh, the, one, the James that's being talked about in this text is Jesus' brother. It's the Lord's brother. He's the leader of the Jerusalem church. And look at what he says to the council, verse 13, to the beginning of verse 15. He says, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is Peter, 
has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from them a people for his name and with the words of the prophets agree. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. So simply he's saying, the prophets agree with Peter's experience. The prophets agree with his arguments. The Gentiles don't have to become Jews. They don't have to submit to circumcision. They don't have to follow the law to be saved. James is saying the prophets agree with that. Now, a lot of commentators are puzzled about what's about to come next in verses 16 and 17 because James almost gives a word-for-word quote from Amos 9, verses 11 and 12, but he doesn't exactly give a word-for-word. It's not exactly what Amos says. So, was James twisting scripture to make a point? Was he like changing some words to, to help him? Notice that James never says that he's quoting Amos. Verse 15 says that the prophets agree. The prophets. So what James is doing is that he's explaining generally what the prophets believed, but through the text of Amos. He's explaining what the prophets generally believed. He's bringing the consensus of the prophets and and teaching that through the text of Amos, if that makes sense. Let's look at verse 16. Now remember what James is doing before I read verse 16. He's quoting Amos closely to support what Peter said. This is supposed to support what Peter's been arguing. Verse 16. Just as it is written... After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. How strange. What are we supposed to do with this weird language about tents? What does the tent refer to? I won't have you go to Amos right now or at all this morning, but from the context, the tent refers to people. The tent is referring to people. He's saying, I will rebuild the people. And the text says that the people, the tent, have fallen. The people have fallen. How did that happen? Well, in the Old Testament, the people is referring to Israel, and they fell, they have fallen by failing to obey God. But the text says that God is going to rebuild the tent. He's going to rebuild the people. He's going to restore the tent. What does that mean? Israel has fallen, but he's going to restore the tent. It means he's going to take Israel in their ruins, in their fallenness, in their brokenness, and he's going to make something new out of it. He's going to restore it. He's going to renew it. You guys, you see that? Is that clear so far? Now look at verse 17. Verse 17 is the purpose of verse 16. Question, how do I know that 
This is the purpose of verse 16. Look at the first word in verse 17. That. If you have the ESV, that. That is a word, a lot of the words you guys might circle is a lot of the words, I I circle probably a lot of words you guys wouldn't circle, but that's a word that I would circle because it demonstrates the logical connection between clauses and sentences. That. So God is going to rebuild his people Israel, verse 16, for this outcome, verse 17. Verse 17. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. What's Amos saying here? What's James saying here? He's saying that the reason, the purpose for him rebuilding the people of God, Israel, is because he wants Gentiles to be included in the people of God. You can see this in the first clause, the remnant of mankind. And the second clause, all the Gentiles. Salvation was never meant to just be for Israel. The Gentiles are not plan B. Instead, God's plan was to use the nation of Israel to save the Gentiles. And that's what we see happen through scripture. And what's being said here in our text is that God wants to take the fallen, broken ruins of the Jewish people and in the ruins, in the brokenness, he wants to create a new people made up of Jew and Gentile in its place. There are different views on the church, but I think scripture teaches that the church is Israel with Gentiles grafted into Israel. All of the promises of the Old Testament made to Israel are being fulfilled in the New Testament to Israel, but Gentiles are brought along into those promises. How does that support James's argument and Peter's argument? Have you thought about that? How does God creating a new house a new people of both Jew and Gentile advance or support the argument that Gentiles don't have to become Jews to be saved. Well, if the Jews believed that Jews alone were the people of God, then that of course means Gentiles need to become Jews to be saved. Which would include being circumcised and following the law. But what James is saying through Amos is 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 that the people of God are now both Jew and Gentile. There's no more Jewish nationalism. There's no more becoming a Jew. God has Jewish people and Gentile people as his people. 
And that would mean that Gentiles don't need to be Jews to be saved. And that means they don't have to be circumcised or follow food laws or, well, we'll get to that in a second, but they don't have to follow the Old Testament law. You see that? Is that, is that clear? We, Milford Bible Church, are the new tent of God. We, at Milford Bible Church, as, are what God has rebuilt with the ruins of Israel. We are a part of the new people of God. And that means we don't have to be circumcised, and that means that because the law was the old covenant, and we are in the new covenant, we don't follow the old covenant law. We follow the new covenant. We follow the new covenant commands with a focus on loving God and loving others. God, out of the ruins of Israel, has built a new people, Jew and Gentile. He's built a new covenant, and he's given new commands. With COVID going on uh, over the summer, I got to see a lot of people uh, staying home, and I've got to see you guys enjoying building many projects at your house, at your houses. I've seen some of you guys remodeling your bathrooms. I've seen you redoing your kitchens and redoing your decks. You tore down something that was older and maybe even broken and rebuilt it into something stronger and more beautiful. Similarly with the, the Twin Towers, after the heartache and after cleaning up the rubble and the, the wreckage, they, they built another impressive, slightly taller skyscraper in its place, the Freedom Tower. And that's what God did with his people. He took the old and broken and fallen Jewish people and created something newer, something bigger, and even more beautiful in its place, the church made up of Jew and Gentile. Paul, he speaks about Jews and Gentiles being one body now in Ephesians 2. Listen to this. He says, therefore, remember that, you formula, that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And listen to this. This is so important. This is what I want you to get. His purpose, God's purpose, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. So God takes the old people of God and he rebuilds them, bringing Gentiles in. We've seen how this principle is applied corporately to the church, but we can also apply this principle individually. 
Everyone in here at some point, everyone here, everyone listening in, at some point we've all felt like we've been thrown against the wall. Some of us have lost our jobs, some of us have recently had a dire diagnosis, some of us have recently lost a friend or a family member, some of us have struggled with the same sin over and over again. And we wonder, what is it that I can possibly learn from this? What is the meaning of this? What is, why is this happening to me? God allows these difficulties to come in our lives because he wants them to stretch us thin. He wants them to pull us apart. He wants, uh, wants them to break us down. And when we're laying there in a million broken pieces, so to speak, God takes our broken lives, puts them back together, and creates something stronger and beautiful, more beautiful in its place. Trust God in your struggles. If the Gentiles are a part of the people of God without having to become Jews, does that mean the Gentiles can flaunt their freedom in the face of the Jewish people? I'll ask again. If the Gentiles are a part of the people of God without having to be circumcised, without having to follow the Old Testament laws, does that mean the Gentiles with their freedom can flaunt their freedom in the face of the Jewish people? Well, after James has said that the Gentiles don't have to follow the law, he strangely then goes on to give them three commandments to follow that come from the law. Look at what James says in verse 19 and 20. Therefore, that's a, everything that's come before to this concluding statement, it's another logical connection. Therefore, in light of what was just said, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, key word, but, but should write to them to abstain from, and here are three things, the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So there's three, you might argue four if you separate the, the strangled and the blood, but essentially... Abstain from food or anything else polluted by idols. Abstain from sexual immorality. And abstain from animals that have been strangled, uh, strangled or if they still have blood. Why these three things? Out of everything he could have said, why these three things? There's two reasons. I'm going to give you probably the stronger reason, second. First, these three, these three things that he describes are what happened in pagan Gentile temples. 
They would offer sacrifices, animal sacrifices to idols in the temple. They would have orgies and commit other sexual acts. And so one reason James commands this is because he's saying you can't have God on one hand and then go worship another God, an idol God in a temple on the other. You can't have both. You need to repent from idolatry. And you can see that, look again at the end of verse 19. It says, you see that the repentance, the Gentiles who have turned to God, it's repentance, and that involves turning away from the temple worship found in verse 20. That's consistent with the context. You guys probably, I know, I know you don't remember chapter 14, but... (laughs) But we read about Gentile temples and their worship of Zeus and other sacrifices in chapter 14. Just listen, you can go to chapter 14 if you want, because it's right there, but uh, look at chapter 14, verse 13. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. So you see the idol, you see the temple, you see the sacrifice. And James is saying that the Gentiles can't be involved in that stuff anymore. They can't participate in temple worship if they claim God. The second reason James commands them to abstain from these three things is because they were offensive to the Jews. The things that bothered the Jews the most about the Gentiles is that they ate in a way that went against Jewish food laws and their sexual immorality. You may say, well, sexual immorality is a sin you should abstain from it anyways. Yes, that's true. But this problem was so rampant among the Gentiles that it needed to be pointed out. Also, God commanded for Jews not to strangle animals and to not eat the blood. But Gentiles did that. And it was very offensive to the Jews. There's nothing sinful about eating an animal that was strangled or about eating food with blood still in it. Because if it was, then you all would be sinning when you order a medium or a rare steak. But why does James say to stay away from it? Because if they are trying to win over the Jewish people and the Jews look at Christians eating blood and strangled meat, that would have been a stumbling block to the Jewish people. Because the law speaks against it, the Jews would see the Gentile Christians as acting against God's will, and so they would believe that the Gentile Christians are fake and that Christianity is fake as well, and it's not of God. Simply, James is saying Gentiles can be saved without circumcision and without law-keeping, but they need to keep in mind their context. And doing these things would have only hurt the gospel message to the Jewish people. Does James say, does he say that these acts would offend the Jewish people anywhere? Does he actually say that? Well, not explicitly, but it's implied. 
Look at verse 21. He says, don't do these three things for, there's another logical indicator. This is the reason, because, this is the grounding statement for what I'm about to say. For, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. What's being said there? He's saying the reason the Gentiles shouldn't do these things is because there are Jews everywhere. And because they have Jews in their city, the Gentiles should follow some of the Jewish food laws to not offend them. What he's saying is, set aside your freedom in Jesus for the sake of the gospel witness to the Jewish people. Set aside your freedom in Jesus for the sake of your gospel witness to the Jewish people. And we should do the same. Scripture teaches us all over the place. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 14. This is about, this is Paul speaking about the, 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 you can go to Romans 14 if you want. We're not going back to our text. But this is about freedom that the Gentiles have in food. This is about the freedom that the Gentiles have in food. And the Jewish people even. The Jewish people also. I'm going to start in verse 13 if you want to read along. Romans 14 verse 13 and on to 15. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. You guys understand what's being said there? You guys see what's going on there? Well, let me break it down. Paul is saying that all foods are clean. He says nothing is unclean in itself. All foods are clean in itself. There's nothing sinful about any food that you eat. You can't look at a piece of food and say, that is sinful to eat that. Because it's not. But he says if somebody else thinks that it's sinful for you to eat that or celebrate that, then it is. For them, for their conscience. Meaning, yes, the freedom you're enjoying isn't sinful or wrong in itself, but there are brothers and sisters who do think it's sinful, and when they see you eating that food and they see you enjoying that freedom, you're bothering them. It's a stumbling block for them, he says. And Paul goes on, Corinthians goes even farther. If I knew eating this would bother my brother, I just wouldn't even eat meat again. I'd go vegan. And he goes on to say, you're he not only says that you're no longer walking in love when you do this, when you eat things that bother your brother, when you practice freedoms that bother your brother, he says, you're no longer walking in love. And he even goes on top of that and he says, you are destroying the one for whom Christ died. And there are many Christians that know their freedoms 
and they have this cavalier attitude, and they say, well, I'm just, I'm just going to indulge, and I'm going to enjoy my God-given freedoms anywhere, whether it bothers other people or not. I don't care. If they can't see that this is a freedom, they need to grow up. You know, you see that sort of attitude. Scripture says that attitude isn't love. That's caring more about ourselves and our freedom than we are caring about other people. You say, oh, well, I I just got a friend who just converted from Islam, and I'm going to welcome him to the Christian faith, and I'm going to roast a whole pig, and I'm going to plop it down right in front of him and say, dig in. Enjoy your new freedom. Probably not a good idea. Probably want to wait for the whole pig. Look, guys, I'm under no delusion. I'm under no delusion that we are all going to come to an agreement about what the pandemic is. I'm under no delusion that we are going to come into an agreement about whether masks are effective or not. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. We are not going to come to an agreement on these things. We're a family. And every family has that extremely cautious mother or grandma. And every family also has that conspiracy theorist uncle or relative that thinks the Pentagon is interested in his Instagram. And we all have that here as well. We have that here as well. Okay, I've heard it all. And regardless of whether I believe that masks are effective or not, I know that I have brothers and sisters who do think they work. And that I know that there are many in our community that do think they work. And when they see other people not wearing one, they are legitimately bothered by it. And so out of love for my Christian brothers and sisters and out of love for those in my community, I wear it. Why am I going to cause division with my brothers and sisters for something as simple as a mask? Why would I allow something so small and insignificant as a mask to hurt my gospel witness to the community? Look, the gospel is offensive enough because you are telling people that they are sinners. And they are going to hate you for that message anyway, often. We are to let the gospel message be offensive itself, but we aren't supposed to be offensive ourselves, if that makes sense. Allow the gospel to be an offensive message to our culture, but we aren't supposed to be offensive ourselves. If you're here and you're watching in, or you're watching in, you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, I would plead for you to do so this morning. Everyone, you included, me included, have lived a sinful life. And the scripture says that God is going to judge us for our sinful lives. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What's truly amazing, though, is if you put your trust in Jesus, you have a promise from God that Jesus 
was judged in your place. When he was on the cross, he was taking your punishment in his place, or while he was there. He was taking your punishment on the cross. And that means you can be forgiven. That means you can experience the ultimate freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from shame. Freedom from the wrath of God. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you so much for another opportunity to preach. Thank you for the men and women that are here. I pray that you would stir in our hearts warm affection and brotherly love for those around us and for those in our community. And I just pray, Father, that, uh, that as we go through this week, that every, that every day is a day of devotion and worship to you. And I just pray that you make your heart, our hearts and our desires I make you the desire of our hearts and our minds. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.